1986, I was a junior in college working at a college radio station. My job was to play a bunch of sad and depressing songs from The Cure and Joy Division and The Smiths. All great stuff, but not a lot of laughs. Those are bands who took their music very seriously, and their fans were often more serious than some of their favorite bands, often dismissing some music as not being serious enough. And then something happened on November 4th, 1986, because that's the day when the two guys from Lincoln, Massachusetts, calling themselves They Might Be Giants, released their first album with their very first single, the insanely catchy and joyful-sounding classic Don't Let's Start. For guys like me who appreciate a good songwriting and thoughtful but quirky lyrics and a significantly lighter tone, I fell in love with this record, just like I fell in love with their next 21 records. Over the years, John Linnell and John Flansburg have become some of the most prolific musicians you're going to find anywhere with music that's clever, infectious, sophisticated, silly, and thoroughly enjoyable all at the same time. But make no mistake, they might be giants or serious musicians who have gone on to win Grammy Awards, sell millions of records. They've even released a number of children's albums that are just as fantastic. They Might Be Giants are not only back on the road next year to play their album Flood in its entirety, they're also releasing a brand new album, a coffee table book-style companion, interestingly enough, both called Book. This is my conversation with John Flansberg from They Might Be Giants, Spaxi's musical podcast. It's Baxi's musical podcast. Did you finish your dinner? Yeah, you did. Just had my last bite. Man, because you said you needed three minutes. That's like that's like some Kobayashi shit, right? That's... Uh, it's uh, delicious ramen. But actually, lovingly made by my wife, and I have to say, it was amazing. <laughs> I'm glad you're full. Yes, yes. I got, I got a lot. Of, I got a lot uh, on the on the plate here. So I'm. Uh, I have to tell you, I've I've been with you guys in in spirit since the very beginning, 1986, uh, when I was in college. Excellent. And uh, it's you know what? It's been one of those real satisfying type of you know rides with the band when you see what they do over a period of time, and it's. It's a real pleasure. So, and I, I want to start off right away. I, I, I feel like I got to ask this question. After all of these years, after all that's happened between you and John, in a steel cage death match, who finally wins? Is it XTC or Adamant? <laughs> um, that's that's a. I, I think it would be a draw. I mean, I think that's the mm. the. Uh... The dynamism of the song is that it never ends. You know, I think I think the sort of Dionysian, the lusty Dionysian appeal of of somebody like uh, Adam Ant versus the sort of uh, you know heady cerebral um, thought provoking imagination sparking XTC. You know, it's like it's, that's what's great about life is that both of those things are available to all of us. I can't say that was the answer I was uh, uh, hoping for, but it was the answer I expected. So, oh, really? You. Okay. Well, well, I'm a big XTC fan. So, and uh, and Adamant won't return my phone call, so I'm kind of leaning one way. But I understand the argument. You know, it's a good uh, gateway drug into the world of Adam and the Ants, which is my preferred format for Adam and Adam Ant. Of course, uh, <laughs> is uh, is Bow Wow Wow. Those those those. First uh, two Bow Wow Wow records are really fantastic. Oh, they are, and 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 they're super weird. I mean, like they're just like raging. They're they they almost kind of predate kind of uh, uh, you 
the, you know, party music. Uh, <laughs> but it's great stuff. And uh, and once you're kind of into that rhythm section and and the way that they work stuff out, it's 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 kind of a joy to listen to Adam Ant. I don't like all the songs. I don't like Prince Charming very much. No, but I, but I I hear what you're saying. You know, percussion wise, those those albums uh, are, oh, are are really unique. But yeah. either way, I'm glad I got the answer finally. <laughs> if I have to call you back another 21 years to figure see if we've gotten <laughs> any further in the argument, I'll do it. Hey, congratulations on the on the new stuff. I'm really excited to uh, to to see it. The 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 book, the uh, the new album, ironically all called book. This is a pretty labor intensive, quarantine friendly undertaking you guys have done. Tell tell me about how uh, this all came together with the book. Well, I mean, we basically were wrapping up an album. With, amb- with ambitions to do this book project kind of on the docket, but not really confirmed. I, I, you know, it, it all kind of happened. It all kind of, the, the, everything with the, the COVID ha- came down right as the work for this really began. I mean, the work on the book side of things. We, we you know, the, our album... Our album-making processes don't have like a, a, a really set schedule. Sometimes we sort of think we're done, and then we end up working on it more in earnest, and that was kind of what happened. We had two weeks of work ahead of us with a set of songs in February of last year, and then ended up going back in the studio in December and ran two studios simultaneously, one while Pat Dillett was mixing. We were recording new songs. And, you know, going through the whole sort of hassle of, of getting everybody tested and being distant and, you know, masked up and all that jazz. So, like, we we did this sort of bonus round where we brought in a clutch of new songs. I can't remember exactly which ones or, like, we j- just, we kind of, we just kind of uh, amped up the, the overall quality of the record with, with, uh, the final effort, yeah. and it was pretty. It was pretty intense because we were the, the the running two sessions at the same time thing, really makes you feel like a fiend. Well, you know, it's it's uh, you know, the second you stop doing one thing, you're kind of doing an, you're jumping into another thing. So it's like uh, you know, it's having two, you know, sets of recording engineers going at it. Well, I would, ima- I would imagine cool. having extra time on your hands is is it can be a curse and and a blessing at the same time. On on one hand, you can always try to improve on what you have. But there's also the other possibility where you're maybe even overthinking something. Well, you know, I, I, I wish I knew more about having too much time to finish things. Um, you know, it's, that's, in general, our experience is not, is not that we have an overabundance of time. I mean, in fact, I feel like for us, the more time we have to work on something, almost uni- it's almost uniformly better. Um, sometimes I think we get a little bit lazy, um, but also... Uh, you know, there's only so much uh, work and reworking of things that we can afford as a project professionally. So it's like it's, you know, I, I, I'm always I'm always happy when we actually get to kind of buff and polish what we're doing a little bit yeah. extra. Well, you know, I'm I'm excited about the book because we're kind of like around the same ballpark in age, and and you know, you know, back when we were kids and buying records. Uh, you know, albums. I mean, there was there was just something magical about being able to hold it and read it and learn about everything. You know, that's I mean, that's not the experience you get when you're downloading an MP3. I mean, you just it's it's like you're you're basically touching air and then trying to absorb 
what the artist is trying to tell you. And that's why when when I say that there's a book that is associated with the record, that's kind of exciting and appealing to to, to me. And I don't know if it's just a an age thing or it's just you know a, like a music fan type of thing. It might be it might be an age thing. I mean, I don't I don't. We weren't trying to figure out how to make the purest expression of like an okay boomer impulse by doing this, but it does kind of uh, speak to the appeal of a, a tactile object to work with while you're listening to music. I think I think the thing that's the problem. I mean, there are shortcomings with streaming. I think that one of the things about streaming, the whole streaming experience, is that the topic of streaming is always moving it's, it's sort of essentially moving on like i think it's always prompting you to listen to something else right uh which is in its own way kind of robbing you of like that intense one-on-one experience that you can have if you're listening to a record or even a cd or a cassette i mean just any physical media is, is so much more limited but i don't know i mean i listen to a lot of stream. i do a lot of streaming so i can't i, I i'm 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 already like well on the other side of that that thing, you know. I just, I I have I own three working stereos with record players, and I love those as well. But it's but it's, you know ultimately, as an active music listener, there's a lot of stuff that I listen to that just isn't available except on streaming. Well, I'm not indignant about it. I mean, I stream everything too, and I wind up putting like every CD I have on on my phone just because just so it's available with me all the time. But but I, but I do appreciate the effort when an artist says, okay, here's something for you to grab onto. Because to me, that's, yeah. I mean, that's a real yeah. valuable experience that then connects you even stronger to, to, the, to the intent of the music. Yeah, I mean, the truth is, is like, you know, we got an opportunity to collaborate with an incredible graphic designer and an incredible photographer and make this thing that was just a, its own kind of standalone project. And that was thrilling for us. You know, it was like a, it was a big challenge and, you know, doing, it was, it was, it's, I'm very happy with how sort of dignified it is and how real it is. And it's, it's just cool. It's just, it is, it is strangely anachronistic in 2021 to be working on something in print, but uh, that's, that's, that's okay. Yeah. You know, we're not, we're not trying to, you know, figure out everything here. We're just doing our our thing. I started the uh, the interview off telling you that uh, I was in college radio back in 1986, and th- there there was something that happened when your when that first album came out that I thought was really interesting. It's one of those things that you you don't really forget. I remember half the kids, you know, at this college radio station playing "Don't Let's Start" and and "Hotel Detective," and uh, and the other half of the kids, you know, were insisting that it wasn't dour and depressing enough it wasn't the cure the joy or joy division or the smiths so it couldn't possibly be taken seriously but within a few days everyone's singing that song in their head and they can't let it go i think it's it says something that you guys you know were releasing something alternative to alternative music at a time when you know everyone was taking everything so seriously that it was a real refreshing change to have someone come up with something that takes real talent, but you know, couldn't really be conceived as like a novelty act or, or, or a joke act. The songs were just too were too good for that to happen. Well, that's a very like generous thing for you to say about our our songs. I mean, I it's you never really know how think what culture your your output is going to land in. I mean, I think we were 
we were very much a product of New York City at that moment, and it was so uh, wide open. You know, there's like just the entire cultural landscape was just uh, on a on a local level was being recast in so many different ways. You know, I mean, the hip hop was exploding, and the downtown music scene was exploding, and there was all this art art collaborations happening and just a lot of the spaces we played in were essentially half performance art venues. So it was, a, it was, a, it was just a really, you know, we were coming from a, a very different place. I, we didn't really know about alternative rock in, you know, college rock in that sort of broader categorical sense, because I, I, I guess we just didn't get it. We didn't hear it in New York city. I mean, in when I lived, I lived in, I went to Antioch in, in Ohio, which is near Dayton, and there was a college radio station there. And I remember just a few years earlier hearing, you know, the music on that station that would obviously be like the antecedents of like, uh, you know, what would become alternative rock. But we were kind of ignorant of a lot of the main stuff that was happening in college rock until we actually started touring, which happened a little bit later. I mean, it wasn't until... We didn't really start doing big national tours till like '88, so, and that was when all that stuff, you know, just the whole big, you know, uh, generation of like alternative rock bands were exploding. American, it kind of, I think, it really moved from English bands to American bands between '86 and '88. Right, and uh, you know, we were we were just playing in clubs where. You know, Husker Du were playing the night before, and the replacements were playing the night after us, and it was just like that was just what it was. It was a very American. It was lots. Of, you know, I mean, these are, I'm talking about venues that you know hold like 200 people, but right. all all the you know, if you just look at the calendars for those venues back then, it's like it's pretty dazzling in a way. I mean, I, I don't. I'm I'm sure there are venues that are doing things right now that will seem just as impressive later on but it's like when i think about it it, it was it was a very cool time to be coming up well you know it, it's it's interesting that you mentioned antioch so i went to a school at marquette which was in milwaukee and i oh, think, oh yeah and i think there was some you know some geographical lag uh you know throughout the country in different scenes obviously you know, you're we were close enough to chicago close enough to minneapolis there were things going on you know in, in those two cities at the time but the things that were Absolutely. going on Things that were going on in New York, things that were going on in Los Angeles and, and some other parts of the country, like Athens, Georgia. I mean, it took a long period of time before that got integrated in college radio. So when a They Might Be Giants comes out, and it's 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 such an unusual uh, change to the REMs and the and the Husker Du's and even the replacements, it's like it sticks out. But but undeniably great. That I mean that's that that that's what the whole point of what I was trying to say it's like no one has ever sounded like they might be giants before or since I mean I think one of the things that was sort of nice about the general impulses of that moment was that you know a lot of the bands were pretty different from one another just in a kind of effortless way a lot of the stuff that we we a lot of the acts that were around us in New York didn't really make it out of New York I mean it wasn't really designed it wasn't scaled to be at like a national thing a lot of it was just kind of for fun but um but I'm curious. Like, did you do you remember a venue in Milwaukee called the Mine Shaft? I do. I do remember the Mine Shaft. I played at the Mine Shaft. We played at the Mine Shaft. I think we might have even played there twice. <laughs> well, I might have been there at least once uh, for the, for that show. 
But there well, were... you would remember if you saw us at the Mineshaft, you would remember because this very, very weird thing happened. Two weird things happened. First of all, Jerry Harrison from the Talking Heads yep. came to the show and stood in the back of the room for most of the show, which I was kind of unaware of, but our sound man was near him and was very aware that he was there. But meanwhile, there was a kid in the audience who, and this is, <laughs> I, I, I regret to report that this is not the, not the only time this has happened in our careers, uh, <laughs> because it's so singular, you would hope it would only happen once. But a, a, a boy, uh, probably kind of underage and, and really seemed sort of off his meds, was actually, actually right in, stood right in front of us and flipped us the bird for the entire show. And it was, it was exactly as distracting as you could imagine. I mean, we're just doing song after song after song, and, you know, people are clapping, and it's, everything's fine, except that, like, three feet in front of us, there is a guy flipping us the bird. And, and it just kind of was a – it was just a drag. You know, it just kind of wore us down. As it happened, and uh, then at the end of the night, right at the end of the night, we were like packing up the T-shirts and I think putting them into the van. And this guy, and the guy came up to us and wanted to buy a T-shirt, and he was really? just effusive about how much he loved the show. And and we were just like, <laughs> why did he flip the bird at yeah. us for the entire show? And he he had no explanation. He just was like, "I was just I was just playing with you, man." Ah. <laughs> it was completely nuts. I think that's the Milwaukee clap, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> that's yeah, how, that's how we would applaud. That's that. Yeah. <laughs> well, we got a very bad case of the Milwaukee clap. Yes. Well, a lot, many people did over the years. Wow. <laughs> so you know what's what's amazing to me is, I mean, it, you know, 22 studio albums, nine live albums. 21 EPs, 10 compilations. If it weren't for Wikipedia, I probably couldn't keep up with the numbers. I mean, it, it, it's it, it's a remarkable of m- amount of work for two people to do together yeah. for that period of time and not want to kill each other in the process. I mean, it, it's a uh, tell me about the relationship that 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 you and John have forged over you know all of these decades. Well, uh, you know, we started as friends. I mean, we were really good friends, and uh, we had um, we shared a lot of uh, passions in common, and um, so it was a very easy collaboration from the get-go. Uh, and, and it has not been um, it has not been dramatic over the years. You know, I mean, we kind of we kind of set our sails and went about trying to make a go of it doing this thing, it certainly has gotten a lot better than we ever anticipated. I mean, I don't know. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I don't think when we started we had any notion that we would – it was it was our dream to make a record, but I don't think we, we ever thought we – it didn't seem that likely that we would get to make an album. So it was very gratifying just to make an album in the first place. And I think from that point on, it's, it's it, you know, it's it, – it was not. It was. Uh, we've just been kind of rolling with things as they went. Uh, it's nice. It's it's great to have such a big catalog of songs to draw on. It makes doing shows really easy because we can change things up. We can change the show up really radically. Right. And it's not. It's not. Um, it's not hard, but it does make it interesting. Um, 
think I think the only thing I regret is like just speaking as somebody who you know I I really enjoy John as a friend. I really like hanging out with him, but there's so much professional time that we have to that we're essentially trapped together. It <laughs> it makes it impossible for us to um, think about socializing in a lighthearted way because we're we are kind of the living embodiment of the other of the job that we have in right. the world you know it's like you know when john comes around i'm thinking like oh i'm at work now and that's kind of <laughs> a little bit sad <laughs> you know and i'm sure i'm sure it's you know john I, I suspect john feels the same way it's like we actually we do have a really good time just hanging out and goofing off but we are going to be basically spending so many uh air so so many days flying to Australia and back or driving to the upper peninsula and back or what whatever you know it's like it's it's there's no end to the amount of travel that we are kind of chained together doing that it's 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 sort of unfair to our our relationship you know one of the things that you guys did early on which i thought you know, i thought was really fascinating and and in hindsight when i think about it it's probably bigger than it even seemed at the time. The, the dial-a-song phone line, you know, at the at the time. Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. Re, I remember calling it, you know, calling it a few times, you know, when I could get through. And after a while, giving up because I could never get through. When I think about what that really meant to your fans, in a way, it was kind of building an early form of social media. It, because people who were interested to find out what you guys had put on your phone machine you know, elicited an action that they would never normally have taken. And I know it lasted for a good long period of time, but that had to take an awful lot of discipline for the two of you to keep up with that every single day. Well, I'll be honest or candid. I'll be candid with you and tell you that there was a little bit of sleight of hand with Dao Song, which is that we had, at any given time, we had a, a, a catalog or a, a library of 30 or 40 recordings. And we were pretty continuously trying to improve on those recordings, but they still revolved around. So, you know, if you called every day for a couple of months, you would hear repeat songs. So it wasn't like we were cranking out 350 songs in a year. Right. That, that wasn't what was happening. But it did have the illusion of that, which was pretty exciting. Yeah, but um, but John, you but, couldn't get in. You you couldn't you couldn't get the number three hundred and sixty five days a year. It, oh, it was it was. Um, you know, by the end of at the peak of it, I think I had before it was computer based. I had a dozen phone machines, and half of them were in the shop at any given time, so they were just being repaired. And I would pick up the 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 five the four or five or six machines from the repair guy. In, in Hell's Kitchen, who, like, lived, like, you know, you, you know, just lived in an ashtray. Right. And, you know, and he, and then I w the other ones would inevitably break as well. So it was, it was, it was definitely, it was hopping, you know. People would be calling day and night. It was wild how successful it was because it just was such a cultural UFO. And it was interesting to be that band, you know. Like, I don't even think people... It was it was probably more like for a lot of people it probably framed us more like the way people think of the Jerky Boys or something you know or or uh, uh, what's the uh, you know the Auto Tune the News or something it was just it was just like a cultural thing 
It was its own thing. It was kind of self-defined. It was nice. You know, from a fan's point of view, because, I mean, you're right. Obviously, you know, the amount of material you would have to do to do this every single day would have been, you know, virtually impossible. But the fact is, you know, people were interested in what was coming up next, even if it meant, you know, they're calling that number over and over again just to get through. As this is going on, the two of you must have just been, like, shrugging your shoulders and thought, you know, whoever thought this would happen. Yeah, but it was good because— Honestly, we had been a local band for a, a couple of years, and we had just gotten to the point where we couldn't really convince our friends to come out to our shows anymore. And you're you're in this sort of perilous, you know, limbo between um, kind of people. You know, it was nice that our friends liked us and that our friends supported us so so hard for so long. But there definitely was this moment where we're kind of teetering on oblivion in like 1985 we played out a, we did a lot of shows in the east village before anything was really happening for us and i'm not sure why we even we were very uncalculating about what we did we just we just i mean in the same way that we just took on the dial song project without really knowing what it would entail we also just played a ton of shows it was uh we i mean we would play 50 shows we played 50 shows in new york city every year for like I don't know, three or four years. It was a, uh, it was a, a really a, a riot of work. A few years, uh, you know, later, you guys started to do something which I thought was a really smart idea for you guys to do. And 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 I assume, you know, you were probably at the age where you know, b- you know, being parents and you know, being involved with families probably meant a little bit more to you. And then when you're like a 21 year old kid buying another answering machine, but the the the, the kids CDs, the the uh, albums, I thought were yeah. really really clever and really really smart. Because my kids got to hear those songs when 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 they were little, and in in the same way, like you know, the Electric Company and Sesame Street were kind of formative in some of that stuff to put education, you know, in in the form of really catchy, uh, you know, earworm type of music, was just a brilliant idea for you guys. Oh well, I I thank you. That's a, that's a very kind thing to say. You know, it's it's a it's a strange move to make. I think we wouldn't have done it if we hadn't felt like we were pretty defined culturally as a rock band. Like it, it, we, I felt like everyone understood what they might be giants meant, and and we were pretty secure in that. Um, professionally, I think a lot of people are afraid to do anything for kids because somehow it makes you. I don't know what the word would be. It's not exactly. Well, I guess it's it's sort of infantilizing in some essential way. And um, and so much about of you know popular music is a kind of posturing and 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 being you know hyper posy and and hyper sexual and and just doing all this stuff that right. is really not the domain of kid stuff at all. Um, I it was. I'll, I'll tell you, like, just as a songwriter, writing songs for kids is, is one of the easiest and, and happiest kind of assignments you can have. It's just, um, it's so wide open, and the challenge is so basic. You know, it's just, it, it sort of, you can kind of get into a, 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 a headspace of writing a song when you know you're writing for somebody who has no, who isn't thinking about, what songs are on the charts or isn't thinking about the history of popular music or, or anything. It's just like, right. it's just, they're in the moment and it's like, everything's new. So it's just like, it's, it's, it's exciting to write stuff for kids. Well, and I think what's cool about it is, you know, I, I think 
I think you're right. It, it's it's probably a challenging and very rewarding. But you know, there's also if for a lot of people who have done it, and they might be giants. Are certainly not the only ones who have done this. You write a song. You know, the 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 catchiness of your of your regular style, but that the the message of the music could be pandering or actually talking down to children, as opposed to what you were doing, where you know you're taking your career, which had been very entertaining, and then applying it to something that, that kids could actually relate to and understand. That's where, it, to me, it, it becomes a little bit more challenging because there could very easily be that temptation to kind of do it the wrong way. Oh, well, I mean, I'll tell you, a lot of, you know, I, I, I've, I've been asked about this before, and, and it is true when, you're, when you sort of enter into the world of kid stuff, even the people you're working with who are, you know, producing the product will will just say like, "Well, you don't have to work that hard on it." You know, it's yeah. like it's it's, and you're just kind of thinking, "Well, that's pretty a uh, pretty uh, cynical way of approaching this project," you know. But um, but we, you know, we we were really kind of into it, especially when we started. It was like it was a really interesting, different kind of challenge, and and. Uh, it was. I'm. I'm very glad we did it. I, I. I don't know actually how much more kid stuff we'll ever do. Um. I, I've. You know. We've. The last ten years have been really preoccupied with kind of just getting back to our basic things. So. Right. You put a lot of pressure on yourself as a as a songwriter. I know. I've, I've talked to a bunch of people that 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 do it, and it's. You know. You know. On, you know. On one hand, it's it, it's a gift, and on the other hand, it can be a curse too, especially if the songs are not coming to you at the same rate that you want. When you're talking about like 22 albums, you must at some point find yourself in a in a in a space of of writer's block because there's two of you. Does that relationship make it easier to get past those moments when nothing else is coming to you? I think it does actually, I, and and it's pretty undefined how it does. I think um, in some ways, you know, we're we're kind of. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a challenge to keep up with the other person, um, and you don't want to be the the bad roommate who's not like holding up their end of the bargain. Um, and there's also like a, a you know a a certain amount of work that we're always doing together. And what's nice about that collaboration, you know, uh, is that I think it always keeps whoever might be having a little bit of writer's block um, just for what's actually happening. It just gets everybody back into the mix. Um, there, has, there was one moment after, right after we did, it was the third kids' album that we, we basically, we got nominated for a Grammy for our second kids' album, and Disney wanted us to do a follow-up record right away. And Disney was, the one thing about Disney that was different than working with other labels was they were really into deadlines, <laughs> which is not surprising. <laughs> but, um, and we had worked in television and worked at doing advertising, so we had the ability to kind of schedule our, our work and, and figure out how much time we needed to focus up to get things turned around and finished. So it wasn't like the, it wasn't unprecedented. But um, doing two kids' albums in a row... Uh, and then basically trying to do a, an adult album immediately after, which would be the album Join Us, proved to be a little bit of a breaking point. We actually both ended up going into a bunch of recording sessions 
with nothing finished. And that really felt, you know, it really felt like we were at the end of the line. I mean, I don't think anybody ever under, no, nobody, I don't even know if the band, the guys in the, the our backup band felt like it was that unproductive. But I think both John and I, we like to we like to have stuff really wrapped up before we go into the studio. Like we right. do we do extensive demos and we we work on stuff and work stuff out pretty well in advance most of the time. And to go into recording sessions with like nothing, even if you're coming out with something that's fun or interesting on the other side of it, it's it's just it's not our it's not us. You know, it's just not the way we like to work. Yeah. And we actually ended up stopping the process and kind of taking a couple like a month off and just breaking to get to regroup and that was but that was really the only time in the whole scope of I can't think of any other moment where we uh, where it, we ran the risk of the wheels falling off the bus. You know, because I, I think of you know I think of songs like like uh, you know Mesopotamians and and I, you know I laugh every time I hear it because I'm thinking you know if I ran out of ideas. All I really need to do is maybe look at some names of Sumerian leaders <laughs> splitting a right. stick of gum between other members of the band, and it just it just makes me laugh because while it's ridiculous it, it, on some level, it, it just shows you that creativity can come from literally anything, and and, and I think that's kind of the magic of what you're, you the two of you have done over the years. It's like a little spark of you know influence can really kind of just inform an entire song. Regardless, oh, well, that, yeah. I mean, I mean, be. I have to say, I I remember that is that song is entirely from the you know ultra vivid imagination of John Linnell, and I, and I remember <laughs> being in the studio and and him coming in with that song, and it and speaking of things just being fully formed, he the demo of the song was completely sorted out. I mean, it had all the all the background vocals, all the, every all the breakdowns, all the parts, all the solo moments, it was just all laid out for us to kind of reproduce with, um, you know, live instruments and, and, and it was just done. Yeah. And it was, it was an amazing, I mean, I, I have to say, you know, John is just like such an extraordinarily talented guy. And it's, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm always just, uh, amazed at, at, at just what a font of, uh, imagination he is. It's, it's really great working with somebody like that. It's, it's very, it's sometimes, sometimes it's a little daunting, but you know, he's, 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 he's a total gent about everything. So it's just like, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's fun. It's fun. It's, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting project to be a participant in. You and uh, you and John both grew up in uh, in Lincoln, Massachusetts. I, I grew up about fifty miles south of you. Uh, oh in, wow! In Massachusetts, I grew up in the town of Rehoboth, which is one of those towns that people in most of Eastern Mass don't even know. Kind of like Rehoboth. I know Rehoboth, I, I, but I always refer to it as Rehoboth, not Rehoboth. Well, you know, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's it can be either one. It's kind of like the difference between Ton and Ton. You know, it's 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 the same the same kind yeah. of thing. But it, I mean, it's such a small. Town. I mean, I think you know, Rehoboth and, and 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 Lincoln are about the same size, just a couple thousand people. Uh, although, if I'm not mistaken, I believe it is also the home of Greg Hawks from the Cars. So that's uh, so that's kind of cool. But you know, when uh, when you guys were young, I mean, I know that you weren't involved musically until many many years later. The idea that you guys could come from the same town, know each other, and then come together later on—just talk about. 
for a minute about that that moment when you just when you discover this musical side to both of you. Well, you know, we grew up. We were, you know, teenagers in the seventies, which was a really rich time to be a music fan. And we saw went to a lot of shows together as teenagers. Like we both. Uh, would go out. A friend of ours worked for uh, WBCN mm-hmm. and could get us into a lot of things for free or very little money. So even as teenagers, we were um, seeing bands from New York and, and bands from Boston and just kind of, we were like the youngest people in the room, but we were totally into it. And it was really um, just this very vivid moment um, I mean, John and I saw Perubu at the Ratskeller in like the like 1978, I think, oh, wow. or 70 or 77. Um, Mink the Talking Heads at the Paradise, like all, you know, all sorts of bands. Just you know, Blondie at the Orpheum. Um, it was just a great. These, these 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 memories are so dusty. It's uh, it's breaking up the hard drive. But like, you know, it just was like a great. It was just a great time to see shows, and um, we had lots of friends who were, uh, you know, kind of had, we all we all had this sort of shared experience and shared sensibility, so it was very, I think we were all informed by one another, yeah. and um, so it was just a very easy mix. Um, I, it wasn't like... Uh, you know, it, I mean, I was in bands with other people from that clique of friends, and it was, it was very similar. You know, it was like we we had, the we had uh, so many shared experiences, and the and rock music was so in in our heads. Um, it just was fun. So you guys are going to be touring uh, next year, and I know a lot of the uh, the dates are you know, rescheduled from, you know, dates that were canceled yeah. during uh, COVID. I know you're coming to Western Mass uh, a couple of times. You're coming to Northampton in March, Mass Mocha in September. It, most of the, the it, it, according to the website, most of these shows that you've rescheduled, they're already sold out. There's very few tickets available uh, for these. So that's, I mean, that's that's kind of cool, you know, when you've got so much other stuff to to offer, the new record, the book, and and and, and everything else. Yeah, it's um, you know, it's it'll be an exciting time. I hope it's not too exciting. You know, uh, <laughs> like it's a, <laughs> I, we're hope by March. I hope things are settled down more than they are now. Um, and it's it's hard to know uh, if it's if it's if it keeps on being freaky. It, you know, maybe maybe we'll we'll maybe it would make sense to reschedule again, or I don't know. I mean, I, I don't I don't want to put anybody in in harm's way, put it that way. But, no, I, uh, I don't know. I, I haven't really been going out. I mean, my, my, I, I live like, uh, you know, I'm at, um, I live a very monastic existence, <laughs> but you still have your wife making ramen noodle meal meals for you. Oh, yes. You're still, yes, absolutely. You're still getting together with John to make music and, and you will at some point come out to Western mass. And when that happens, I'm going to find that kid from Milwaukee with the middle finger and see how it goes for you. <laughs> <laughs> I am looking forward to that. Hey John, it's a, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. Like I said, I've been I've been following you guys since the very beginning, and to have a, a few minutes talking to you has been a lot a lot of fun. Oh, it's totally my pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you, John. Very Thank much. Bye bye. Take care. Again, the name of the new album and the book by They Might Be Giants are both called Book. They're now available for purchase, and they are both very well done. Thanks for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Feel free to like it, review it, share it amongst your friends. 
You can always email me at BaxRock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.